electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Inflation still hot. The number that might inform the Fed's next rate hike, or maybe not, our own Steve Leisman. Because it is not worse than expected, the Fed has the latitude or flexibility to pause. And the banking crisis aftershocks. But the question on the banking is, are we out of the woods? And I don't know. The fallout from Silicon Valley Bank's depositor rescue with former Bridgewater CEO David McCormick. Banking is about confidence, and I understand the need to create confidence, but we're also creating precedents that are, are deeply troubling. What happened and who's responsible? There's plenty of blame to go around. Plus, you think airline tickets are expensive? Delta's CEO Ed Bastian on the fares, the demand, and safety. The 10 highest sales days in our company's history have all occurred within the last 30 days. It's Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. Happy Pi Day. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. Let's take a look at the U.S. equity futures because... First up today on the podcast, where do we go from here? Investors are looking for clarity after a few dramatic days following the shutdowns of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The Federal Reserve's rate-setting committee meets next week and is still on track to raise the benchmark interest rate, the Fed funds rate, by a quarter point. At least we think that the second and third biggest bank failures in history won't spook Fed Chair Jay Powell so much that the Fed will alter its course of rate raises to cool the economy and tamp down inflation. What will the committee be looking at in terms of data for decision-making? Well, today's Consumer Price Index. The government reading measures consumer prices across a large basket of goods, and it showed a 0.4% increase for the month of February, putting the annual inflation rate at 6%. The CPI hit at 8.30 Eastern this morning while we were on the air. We'll get back to Becky Quick with CNBC's Steve Leisman and economist Joe Livornia. Steve, why don't you just walk me through, first of all, and tell me what this means from the Fed's perspective. Does this make it more likely or at least take the pressure off them to, to raise at this next meeting next week? You think they'll have the ability to sit back and say, we're going to take a pause because inflation's not hotter than expected and we are concerned about what's happening in the financial system. They have a a lot of work to do here. They've still got an inflation problem, Um, but I think they'll feel like they have at least some wiggle room in that it was not worse than expected. There's one thing I'm a little, I guess, concerned about here. Used cars and trucks, the prices were actually down 2.8%, and there's no other way to follow this uh, issue here than listen to Phil LeBeau who says those, that, that number is rising. So I'm a little concerned that this number did not pick up what's really happening in the economy. Sometimes that happens with a lag with the CPI number. I also noticed, Becky, that your shelter costs, um, OER, is still at 0.7%. 
There's a very important expectation at the Fed that this number comes down. It's about a third of, of the CPI, um, and, and it will hopefully come down, and that will be a big part of why the Fed can relax a little bit. I think this number, Becky, just to sum up, because it is not worse than expected, the Fed has the latitude or flexibility to pause if it feels it needs to because of the financial conditions. Joe, let's talk about what you think the Fed should do here. They should definitely pause when you have a crisis like this, and you could just see just on, based on market price action how much the two-year notes moved, biggest since 87, how much front-end spreads have moved, biggest since the Greek crisis. The Fed's either eased shortly thereafter or they've paused. In this case, they could pause. They could stop the QT because the QT is draining the bank reserves at a 10 11% rate. That's because right now what's happening is these smaller, medium-sized banks are scrambling for deposits. Wait. See how things evolve. You've got the new forecast. You can still highlight the fact they need to do more. They'll likely need to do more, but just wait. Go five weeks, see what happens. You can reevaluate in May. Okay. Meantime, regional bank stocks, they did get a bit of a bounce uh, today. This after what was a rough session yesterday. I knew this morning sources telling CNBC that U.S. regulators set to make a second attempt to sell Silicon Valley Bank after that auction this past weekend had failed. Uh, that comes uh, after shares of First Republic Bank plunged in yesterday's session. This despite what was an infusion of funding from the Federal Reserve and from J.P. Morgan. Other regional banks, including PacWest and Zions, tumbled as well over investor concern that their level of deposits relative to the larger banks may not be enough. Shares of Charles Schwab, Truist Financial, and U.S. Bancorp also tumbled yesterday. Now, some of the country's biggest banks also declined, although their pullbacks were less severe. Wells Fargo, Citibank of America, all off about 10 percent. And I think that's really just an indication of what may be the implication for the larger economy because of this. But the question on the banking is, are we out of the woods? And yeah. I don't know. Well, I, you look at the regional banks, I guess it's reassuring to see some of those bounce right. backs today. Um, but I think there's still a lot of questions about what the Fed's done, what the Treasury is doing right. at this point, what all of this means. And I think investors are still kind of digging through, trying to figure right. out who's got unrealized losses, where the depositors right. are really going. And, and, and if you don't get updates on what the like day-to-day -day movements are on those deposits, that's been the, the, the well, biggest Well, the question, question is, is this sort of implied guarantee that's been put out there? I think it is. Enough. And is that just a, but, but by the way, you can still have, I mean, what we don't know. Do you have, could you have a bank failure and then do, is, does the government really just take over the deposits? Could they do that continually? Like if that became a running thing or is the, I mean, the implied guarantee is trying to avoid that from happening. But if you actually, if it had to happen in truth, what happens? And the implied guarantee we should point out again is only for the deposits. Right. If you're a shareholder, if you're right. a bondholder in these banks, that's not going right. to save you. They, they want to make. And sure some people that, tell you the, it's an implied guarantee that it's actually not a real guarantee. It, it is, but I, I think it was an intentional implied right. guarantee. I think that right. that is kind of counting on that. Um, you, did you hear Ken Griffin's remarks from Citadel? No. Okay, so he was speaking to the FT, and he said that basically it's kind of an outrage that the Fed stepped in here or that the government stepped in to, to guarantee the depositors. And as he said, I think it's basically capitalism collapsing before his eyes, that there should be risk here. Right. I, I, I don't think that this is something they did except for the fact that they were worried about the banking system at whole. I, right. I, I don't think this was about so much the Silicon Valley aspect of this. Right. I, I think that would have been a much harder lift, but I think they were very much worried 
about the systemic failure of bank after bank and trying to put a firewall around that. And the question is, have they done that? And that's the thing I yeah. just don't know. Yeah. I, 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 it's interesting, too, because there have been so many people who have been commenting on this. Um, Bill Ackman right. has come out and said now that the regional banks look cheap to him because of right. what the Fed has done. He was tweeting that. Right. Um, and you have to wonder which side everybody's on. Or is Bill buying? Was Ken shorting stuff? Right. I mean, they're all they're right to bring up all of these issues, but it's always the second is, and, and what is your position beyond any of these? But right. it's going to be some interesting stuff, and you see both sides kind of speaking up pretty uh, vociferously, and this is what makes a market. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, demand for Delta. The airline's flights and ticket prices still taking off, despite new focus on safety concerns. CEO Ed Bastian joins us. Yes, we've had a, a spate of some challenges. And candidly, you, you look at it and you wonder whether it's partly due to the return from the pandemic in terms of the experience level out on, in the field isn't at the same level. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is off today. United Airlines, those shares are sliding today. The company forecast a loss in the current quarter, citing weaker demand growth compared with other months, also talking about higher fuel costs. United says it expects an adjusted quarterly loss now of somewhere between 60 cents and a dollar a share. That's down from its previous projection of earnings between 50 cents and a dollar per share. Now, that stock off by about 6% on that news. Other airline stocks right now, if you want to take a look, also reacting to some of the pressure on this. And we are going to hear from United's rival, Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian will join us. Philip Bowe is going to be here. He was talking about this last night. And one of the things in their filing when he dug through it is that they did say the growth that they've seen to this point moderated somewhat in January and February. So not that it's gone away, right. it's just that unusual strong growth that they've had quarter after quarter as consumer demand has been there has, has waned a little bit. And I think there's some concern around that too. Right. Right now, we want to get right to Phil LeBeau. He joins us on set this morning with a special guest. And Phil, thanks for being here. And and look who's here with us. Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines. Uh, on a day you guys are going to be presenting a little bit later on, along with another a number of other airline CEOs at J.P. Morgan's conference. Um, but you put out your, uh, your latest guidance this morning, reaffirming what you're expecting for the first quarter and the rest of this year. And we've asked this, I know, a million times. But overall, are you seeing any deterioration at all in terms of the demand that's out there right now? We really aren't, Phil. First of all, good to be with you, Becky, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Uh, the demand is really strong, and as a result of that, we were able to confirm not just the fact that we'll be profitable this quarter, as we said at the start of the year, but also our full year guidance. Uh, I'll give you one data point, because everyone keeps asking that question. They've been asking that question right. for the better part of the last year. The 10 highest sales days in our company's history have all occurred within the last 30 days. 10 highest in our history. 
Yeah. In terms of day, days for flying, or is that booking sales. out? How is it for sales? Sales, cash, yeah. cash in. You know, so nobody's of, slowing down. So, so part of it is behavioral shift. So consumers are buying out a little further, a little earlier in the cycle because they remember last spring and summer, you know, Not challenges of, of traveling, uh, but also the core demand. How much of it is higher ticket prices, too, if you look at per seats versus? Prices have consistently stayed somewhere between 15 to 20 percent higher reference to 19. So that's four years ago. So with inflation and everything, it's, it's really not significantly higher than, than 19, but it's in that range. You know, uh, United's 8K came out last night. I'm not going to ask you to comment on another airline's 8K, but the wording within their 8K has people wondering if we're starting to see a return to seasonality because they say the growth that they've seen in January and February, not as strong as the growth they're expecting in traditionally stronger months, a.k.a. we're seeing a return to seasonality within the airline business. Do you expect it to be a return to seasonality, let's say by the end of this year, next year? Um, because for a long time, all it has been is go, go, go. People are booking. People are booking. You know, seasonality is a real thing in our business. You know, at the end of the Christmas holidays, and you know, people get back to work, they get back to school. There's there's a natural pullback as compared to the the holiday season or compared to spring break, which we're in now. So, now we we anticipated uh, seasonality. I think seasonality may have been muted a touch last year, but we don't we don't see that trend. By the way, for us, seasonality now we're in season. And we see the season running right through Labor Day. Can I ask you, just, this is not a seasonality question, but it be a weekly question. I remember there was a period of time where the, the highest volume flights were Thursday nights, at, Thursday nights and Monday nights, which had changed from Friday nights and Sunday nights in this sort of hybrid work world. Has that shifted at all? Yeah, yeah we're, we're seeing a leveling out during the week of travel, particularly business travelers that are traveling as hybrid workers. Um, so, but the idea that Tuesday, people are going, so at, going, Tuesday, going to an Airbnb so, for four days to go work. Well, you get that, but you also see Tuesday mornings are interestingly quite busy because you have a lot of the consultancies going out for right. just two days a week rather than four days. So Mondays are, are slower as compared to what they had been historically. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays are actually a bit higher. But it's not necessarily that people aren't working in the office. It's that's when the consultants are traveling because nobody's yeah, in the office outside Yeah, because con the, the consultants that are on the road all the time and the consultancies tend to be our biggest corporate travelers. They're, they're having fewer trips, smaller duration, but actually by having smaller duration, they can... salespeople. These are consultants. Sales, yeah, no, the, the sales, sales has moved online. What's happened? Sales has partly moved online, but sales, yeah, they're still they're still big. But consultancies, professional service firms, the accountants, the lawyers, they tend to be, and they have been for the last decade, the highest volume travelers in terms of price as well as as well as volume that we have. Ed, tomorrow is the safety summit. Uh, the FAA is holding in Washington. A lot of stakeholders, uh, whether it's government agencies, whether it's uh, airline um, trade associations. Um, within the transportation industry. What's going on in terms of the near misses, runway incursions? I, 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 the general public looks at these reports and they think it's chaos. It's never been worse to fly. It's never been more unsafe to fly. From your perspective within the industry, what do you think is going on? Well, first off, I think it's great that the FAA is having the summit because you know, we, we are in an industry, we don't compete on safety. You know, we bring everyone together, our peers, our regulators, our, all, the, all the stakeholders in, in the uh, aviation system all have the same goal, is to have the safest transportation system and, known and to we man. Do. And, and we and, do. And we do, and we still do. That is not the issue. 
yes, we've had a, a spate of some challenges. And candidly, you, you look at it and you wonder whether it's partly due to the return from the pandemic in terms of the experience level out on, in the field isn't at the same level. By the way, that's air traffic control, whether that's on the ramp, that's in, in the cockpit. But people don't understand and appreciate how much attention that that gets by the airlines, not the regulators, but the airlines, because we know that for ourselves. So we've gone in and we've provided a heck of a lot of additional oversight. We're managing and watching our experience rate, because we look at that in terms of a risk assessment as having change. And anytime you have change in the safety environment, you watch. So I can't speak to the individual episodes that occurred, but I can tell you that this is on my airline, our airline, and we've, we provide a tremendous amount of oversight and attention on safety. We don't talk about safety, but we do internally as our number one priority. Let me do a quick follow-up, and I know these guys have questions. Does that mean that you guys as an airline have said, look, let's double down in terms of what we can do to make sure that we're providing, whether it's the training, the, the assets, the oversight, whatever it might be, you've doubled down to make sure no that question. everybody... Uh, no question. You've done and, that within the last six months. No, we, we did it at the start of the pandemic. You know, when we knew change... Anytime you see change in the environment happening, you, you sit back and you risk assess. We put more buffers in. We have... That's one of the reasons we're not fully back yet in terms of our full capacity to flying. We take it on ourselves. We don't wait for a regulator to tell us. It's, it, this is our brand. This is our responsibility. And I assure you, every airline in our industry is doing the same thing. Well, wait a second. When you see Southwest say something like, we would like to see airlines have, um, have pilots that are required with less experience than in the past, that doesn't sound like they're doing the same thing. Uh, we're not saying that to Delta. Okay, but you, you, that that would not be something that you would look at. I think that issue is maybe less understood they want to use uh, simulator training time to help qualify to be able to hire pilots. I don't agree with that, by the way. We, we don't want to see any changes. And by the way, for our industry, we're not advocating for that either. Uh, but no, this is a time that we all are on high alert, not because we're concerned. It's because we want to make sure nothing happens. I was going to ask you about energy prices. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, you know, for that's us, like, it that's has, like one of your biggest inputs. You know, for us, it, it's been it's been kind of interesting. We own our own refinery, right? You know, right down the road here, in uh, outside of Philadelphia, and um, it's been actually a, a, a tailwind for us. You know, we've been able to, on the crack spread, you know, be able to save a heck of a lot of money on the refining spread, and that's helped us uh, keep our prices kind of in check somewhat. But where do you think? I mean, we're looking at WTI crude, right? at seventy-two ninety. You got, you guys have like, a, uh, I assume you have energy economists and other people around that are going to tell you what what the price is going to be. I, I, yeah, they'll tell you what you want to hear. <laughs> and I, you, you, want, you want to hear lower, I, I but, don't, I don't, but I don't, what is your expectation? Tell me who was calling for $72 you know, three months ago. Right. No one. Well, that, uh, that's Ed, why we don't hedge. Right. The, the stuff that we're hearing right now about concerns in the financial markets, um, do you worry about that bleeding over into the broader economy? Because right now we're just talking about a financial system, and it, it looks like the Fed is stepping in to try and stabilize things, but does that have any sort of impact eventually on the consumer, I think is the question people are asking too. Well, we've seen a, a shift, and we've talked about this for last year, between the goods economy and the services economy. We're, we're in the services economy, we're a beneficiary of that. And then when you go deeper within the services economy, we're an experience company. We sell experiences, and the experiences are the premium component of the service economy, and that continues to be very, very strong. We, uh, was last year, a few months ago, I mentioned there was $300 billion 
of unmet travel demand over the pandemic. And so what that also means is there's $300 billion of people are sitting in their bank accounts that they didn't spend. Some of that is earmarked for travel that's now occurring. So I don't, I don't think you're going to see a slowdown for us anytime soon. Ed Bastian, thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. And I'll see you over at the J.P. Morgan conference. Yeah. And uh, busy day. We'll hear from a lot of airline CEOs today. We'll hear from Mr. Bastian a little later on this morning there. Great. Great. Thank, Thank you. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, bringing banks back from the brink. What the Silicon Valley bank ordeal revealed about our financial system with David McCormick, former CEO of hedge fund Bridgewater. There's $18 trillion of bank deposits. Eight trillion or so are uninsured. So is this a precedent? Is this actually a practical way to do it? Plus all the rest of the challenges we're facing. There's problems everywhere. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. As we monitor the latest developments in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and federal backstop, after seeing their worst days in three years, regional banks appear to be bouncing back. We do have some stocks up this morning. First Republic, we should say, up 18 percent. That, though, after a a big fall, we're at 37.20 on that stock. This is sources telling CNBC the regulators planning to try once again to auction off SVB after they were unable to do so over the weekend. A report in the FT this morning that a number of the uh, venture capital firms actually in the Valley uh, looking to try to stand up SVB in one way or the other. For more on this, the response from regulators, market volatility, what's going on in this country? Uh, we are joined by Dave McCormick. He's the former CEO of Bridgewater, former Republican uh, Senate candidate for Pennsylvania, now the author of a new book. It is out today. It is titled Superpower in Peril, a battle plan to renew America. And we couldn't be more thrilled to have you, Thank especially you. given what's happening uh, in this country and in the financial world today, because you lived, not just lived through it, but were part of a central actor in 2008 and that uh, financial crisis as uh, somebody working for Hank Paulson at the time in the Treasury. So I'm so curious, as just before we even get into it, what you're, as you've been watching this whole thing play out, what you're thinking. Well, it's a little deja vu all over again, but you know, you think about what's, there's some similarities and there's some profound differences. I think the similarities are that the financial crisis of 2008 was a byproduct of an extended period in part of low interest rates. And what we have now is a crisis that's the byproduct of a decade of excess, excess spending uh, and excessively low interest rates. And that's creating uh, an asset liability mismatch. And uh, I think Silicon Valley Bank had lots of problems about its management, poor oversight by the San Francisco Fed. But ultimately, it's, a, it's an indicator of a much broader set of problems because we've got a real challenge with inflation. The right. Fed's going to have to wrestle that to the ground, and uh, it's uh, going to create lots of challenges for our economy. Okay, I want to get to the broader challenges, but I'm curious, as somebody who tactically has seen sort of the different things that the government did back in 2008, and you've now seen what today's government is doing, do you think that this, is this a firewall, meaning the, the sort of implied guarantee for deposits of sorts. It's not a full guarantee, but implied, the Fed backstop, what's actually happened with SVB. Do you say, okay, 
the dominoes have, have, have stopped or are there more dominoes? Well, two. two. I mean, you, you have as more expertise on 2008 big picture than I do in many ways because you wrote the book on it. But I've learned and I think with, with, be with, act with caution right. and humility about what lies ahead. I'm not entirely sure. I look at the response to Silicon Valley Bank and I wish they would have been able to sell it over the weekend. I think that would have made things much cleaner. I, I like the fact that management was replaced the, the way it was. I like the fact that the creditors are going to be challenged. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, un, I'm, I'm worried right. about the fact that the uninsured depositors were protected that way. And I'm worried for two reasons. One, there's the, the, the basic principle of you have the guy who is doing the landscaping outside the building who's now not going to get paid on, on his outstanding. And you've got the venture capitalist who's going to get paid 100% uh, right. money good on the deposits. Something seems off with that. Then the second thing, there's $18 trillion of bank deposits. $8 trillion or so are uninsured. So is this, is this a precedent? Is this actually a practical way to do it? So... Um, so I've, I've right. got real concerns. It kind about of is it. a precedent, though, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, 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 it's one that it's yeah. hard to unroll back. I, I, I think mean, so. And listen, how you do it at that banking, point without causing a serious. You, you, you guys know this well. Banking is about confidence, and I understand the need to create confidence. But we're also creating precedents that are, are deeply troubling. And, and and you know well that the second and third order consequences of policy isn't always uh, evident right. until sometime down the road. Okay, so you talked about inflation, and you talked about. For easy money. A lot of this book is about sort of the easy money that's happened over the years and what needs to happen to fix the country. But I'm curious, do you blame, do you look at what Jay Powell's done and say this created that and that it was part of his responsibility, for example, to see through the idea that there were banks like an SVB that could get hit? Or do you say this is, that is actually the responsibility of the executive management team of SVB to, you know, if there's a rainy day, uh, to be able to deal with the rain. Well, I'd, I'd say both. There's a decade of policy of excessive spending. I think the, the spending by any measure has gone off the charts over the last two years. And there's more than a decade of, of persistent easy money. And, uh, and yeah, we should have made adjustments sooner, in, in, in my opinion. But at this moment, that's created a macro environment that's very, very risky. Now, in SVB's case, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. Management, absolutely, right. uh, did a terrible job of managing the risk. But the San Francisco Fed has oversight here, and what happened was so obvious in the following sense. That, that long-duration treasury portfolio they had, combined with a concentrated base of depositors who all are, are going to be challenged in this environment. So I, I don't... Uh, is it a problem for other banks? I keep trying to figure out. I know people say this was the deposit base was, was flighty, that they, they were people who needed their money right now, um, as it's harder to get liquidity elsewhere. But that problem of unrealized losses exists in a lot of banks. Is right. it a problem for the other banks, too? Well, we'll see. It's, uh, it's certainly, it exists. It's true. And the steps that, the, that right. the, uh, the Fed's taken to try to give people confidence with the liquidity vehicle is, you know, And the ability to come. Right. Can you take anything to the window? Or does it have to be treasuries? Like, how far out can you go on the spread with, with stuff backed on MDS? And I guess yeah, that's a big question, to be too. Seen. I, I heard you a couple of days ago saying that you had taken your money and were buying T-bills. And I said, well, you know, you get a better return. <laughs> no, it, it's not a safety question on that. I took yeah. some of it out because it, this was a, I think this is another issue, too. Yeah. This is pointing out to Americans, you're not getting anything on the checking right. and savings. They should be paying you more for that. On a T-bill, right. you can get 5% right. which is going to but that same Just, dynamic is you better going to, start paying more. That same dynamic is going to create pressures on, on regional banks. But they should start to pay right. more. And, and this is emblematic, if I can say, right. of, of the broader point that I try to make right. in the book, which is essentially the book 
the thesis of the book is that America's in decline um, by any measure, economically, national security, spiritually, I lay out the case, and, um, and decline's an option. I mean, decline isn't preordained, but neither is renewal. It depends on what right. we do. Okay, so let's talk about that, because I would say the first, call it half of the book, does a brilliant job of sort of laying out the problem. And the second half of the book sort of lays out a lot of potential solutions. But what, what is the, if you could do only one thing in this book, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing one thing, Andrew. I'm doing three things. So, uh, so the book essentially makes the case for renewal. So it's got this, uh, it's got this very ominous cover, uh, which, which says that we're in a very difficult point, but it also is a book that's extremely optimistic. And essentially, the argument is that we need to educate uh, our people. We need to fix our education system. We need to create opportunity for skilled workers. We need to confront China. It lays out a holistic plan for yep. doing that. And we need to... Uh, Secure, secure America, and we need to secure America through what we do with defense, what we do within our institutions, and what we do with, with big tech. Oh. And, and this is not, to be, to be fair, if you're a CEO, you learn, there's problems everywhere. And the key is fixing the things that are gonna have the biggest lift. And what the problem I'm trying to solve is twofold. One, the American dream is drifting away. Right. We need to create a dynamic, productive economy that creates opportunity for all. And second, we're being challenged on the global stage by China. It's an existential risk. So we need to have a strategy that builds muscle at home, engages with China abroad. So I'd still say I'd rather be here than anywhere else. Yes, I agree with that, but it depends on what we do. We, we are very capable of screwing this up, and we're on the edge of the cliff, and that's the American story. You get to the edge of the cliff, and you pull yourselves back. And what I say in the book is, I lived through it. The reason I'm optimistic, I lived through it in the late 70s. I was a kid in rural Pennsylvania, the local mill, lost a lot of people, uh, folks. I sat in lines for gas, you know, odd days and even days. And four years later, I was at West Point, and it was morning in America. Four years of leadership and policy took the country in what I thought was the right direction. And you talk about Reagan in the book. Let me ask you this, though. Uh, you, uh, you, you've, uh, you've, you've worked to protect uh, this country. You're, you're, you're now a veteran, uh, if you will. Um, when you think about defense spending, the economic cost of defense spending, and you talk a lot about China and, and, and cybersecurity. How much should we be spending? Are we spending the right amount? Are we spending too much? I mean, because the other piece yeah. of this is that we're spending too much on other things. Yeah, well, listen, I look at that as obviously a, a soldier and someone who, who is a combat vet. I also look at it as uh, someone who's run companies and recognizing the need for constraints. And I think the answer is we're probably spending a little too little. And uh, if you look at the Biden defense budget, it doesn't even keep up with inflation. If you look at the world, has there been a time in, uh, since World War II that we've been more challenged uh, on the global stage by a variety of threats? Now, how we spend the money, I think the, the number probably needs to grow a bit at, at a minimum to keep up with inflation and probably more, but how we spend it is, uh, is a second question. And I think there's a lot more that can be done to make sure that we're spending on the next generation right. platforms what and uh, be, doing the things we need to do. What do you think the economic relationship with China ultimately needs to be, though? Because well, you are trying to thread a needle in here. Yeah. Uh, listen, here's the reality of it. The reality is that we were, we were asleep at the switch. We were sleepwalking. Can you, I couldn't believe it during COVID that our entire supply chain for pharmaceuticals depended on China. I, I didn't know that. I was shocked. Can you believe that 90% of the microchips that we need are manufactured 90 miles from, from mainland China? This is crazy. So there's strategic industries that we should have never let go of that either need to be home in America or they need to be within our uh, our allies that we have deep confidence. So the so, CHIPS Act was the right move? The CHIPS Act was the right intent and, and, and flawed in substance. So the idea of bringing microchips home, 
absolutely critical. We can't compete with China the way that our current uh, 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 system is working on microchips. Right. So it was too little money. We should have more in R&D. It was too much focused on giving subsidies to particular companies. And then on top of it, there's a bunch of social engineering that's been um, put on top of the companies based on, uh, on the chips. Right. So, so I think right direction, some of the wrong subsidies. Okay, two more questions. Future of the Republican Party. Yeah, listen, we, the Republican Party I, right now should be a perfect moment because the uh, Democratic Party is lurching to the left. Progressive policies are taking us over a cliff, in my opinion. And so we need to lead. And leadership requires three things. It, first of all, requires great ideas. So I think we need ideas to take the country forward. We can't look backwards. We have to look forwards. Second, we have to, we have, to have candidates that win elections. So they have to win primaries and win general elections, and we have to be focused on that. And then we need to do some smart things structurally. Uh, so we need to recruit. Um, and, and bring uh, uh, in new voters. And on top of that, we need to embrace mail-in ballots. Uh, we can't win if you start on election day, in Pennsylvania as right. an example, with 500,000 votes already in for the, for the Democrats. Right. And so uh, it should be uh, our moment. The question is, will we, will we look forward? Will we, will we move forward and, and win? Are you going to run again for something else? You know, there, there's a Senate seat open in 2024, uh, not open, but, uh, but uh, the incumbent's up for election. And I'm, I'm thinking about it. I, I right. haven't decided yet. It's a, it's a big decision. But, uh, but if you run because you want to serve and help the country and you lose, it's not like the motivation to serve goes away. So, but we're, you know, thinking about it as a family, praying about it. My, my wife is insisting that I get a job of some kind <laughs> sooner rather than later, so I gotta figure this out. And I gotta ask you, as a former uh, Bridgewater man, yeah. uh, now that you're gone, and now that Ray Dalio's gone, what do you think that firm looks like, and what do you think, by the way, he's gonna end up doing? I have no idea, I, I mean, you know, Ray, Ray, Ray has lots of ideas and uh, lots that he wants to, to, to write and talk about, so I have no doubt he'll be very busy and productive. You know, listen, I think the firm, it, it'll, it'll be hopefully the best of, of two things the core of the principles and the values that made it successful, and also the next generation that can make it their firm. And I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about that. I I'm, I'm feel very proud of, of where we are in that transition. Succession, as you know, founder successions are hard to do, and that one uh, is moving in the right direction. Okay. Uh, Dave McCormick, uh, the book is called Superpower in Peril. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, both Great to see you. you. Thanks. And that's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.